Welcome to episode 133 of District of Conservation. This is your host, Gabriella Hoffman. Today is a very busy day in politics with the news of the Georgia runoff to determine who controls the U.S. Senate. But to keep your mind off of things, I wanted to deliver you guys a great episode with Roy Hill from Brownells. But before we dip into our wide-ranging conversation with Roy, I want to bring you guys a new review from Priscilla Magana Weens, who is a past guest of the show and provided this phenomenal review of the podcast. We're now at 60 reviews on Apple Podcasts, and it reads, greatness, pure greatness, great information, great guests, educational topics, and a great voice. Greatly recommend. Thank you, Priscilla. And if you feel inclined to leave a review too, Head over to Apple Podcasts if you have it on your smartphone. Type in District of Conservation. Scroll down all the way down to the bottom for the review section. Hit the review option. Leave a comment. Hit five stars and let me know your thoughts on the podcast. Thanks again, Priscilla. Now, here is our interview with Roy. To learn more about Brownells and Roy's work, I'll include more notes in the show. Notes bio section for you guys to check out. But let's dive into my conversation with Roy Hill from Brownells, which you can also find on YouTube. Enjoy. Roy Hill, it is so great to catch up with you. Thank you so much for joining District of Conservation. How are things? Well, things are great. And thanks, Gabriella, for having me on the show. It's been a long time since I got to see you in person. I know it has been a while. I think it was POMA of uh, 2019. And COVID curtailed our uh, efforts to all get together last Yeah, that was POMA. Yep, yep, yep. And before that, it was the rally in D.C., so. Yeah, yeah. I think after, it was the rally in D.C. afterwards. Um, okay. I thought after POMA. Right. Yeah. Right. That so was October. A year, yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's been such a long time. <laughs> Way too long. Yes. But why don't you tell my listeners who you are and what you do at Brownells and what is Brownells, too? Sure. My name is Roy Hill. My official title at Brownells is Public Relations Specialist 2, although I wear a whole lot of different hats. I wind up doing a lot of different things, which keeps the job interesting. Uh, I've been in the firearms industry about nine years. In fact, uh, my, uh, my hire date at Brownells will be January 12th, so in about eight days be my ninth year with the company. I have an unusual track for getting into the gun industry. Uh, There are not a lot of people who followed the same twisted, torturous path that I followed uh, because I was kind of sort of a college English instructor for about 18 years before I got hired at Brownells. I was a college English instructor. I was a journalism uh, instructor. I uh, also advised newspapers, student newspapers on two different campuses. And before that, I've pretty much been a, either a full-time or a freelance journalist since about 1994 or so, if you count my time with the Arkansas Traveler at the University of Arkansas. But my first official full-time job uh, beyond the University of Arkansas was a, uh, as a daily sports reporter for a little paper called the Benton County Daily Record. So I was that. I was a college English instructor. Uh, some things happened to convince me Maybe as the gun guy in a liberal arts faculty, I was kind of the proverbial square peg in the round hole. I'll just leave it at that. And I had to find a way to come be among my people. So I started applying for every single gun-related job I could find. And this is the one that hit. That makes sense. And I think I was initially mistaken that Brownells makes firearms. Could you explain what you guys exactly do? (laughs) Well, we kind of sort of do now. Uh, Brownells, uh, in fact, on my Brownells flag here, it says serious about firearms since 1939. 
online. If you check it out, check out brownells.com. Uh, you'll see that's our official motto. Brownells has been in business since 1939. We originally started as a gunsmith supply house. I'll tell you more of the story of, of, of the origin of Brownells later, if you like. But over the years, we have expanded into more and more firearms related products. When I first started, one of the taglines I helped come up with was, if it goes in a gun, on a gun, through a gun, a gun goes in, in it, we've got it. And a few years later, we could add if it is a gun. <laughs> so uh, we sell both uh, other manufacturers' firearms on our website. Firearms is actually now a major product category at brownells.com. We have approximately five this 5,000 different models listed on the site. But of course, right now we're in the midst of uh, unprecedented gun industry product demand levels. So we don't have 5,000 models of guns in stock. Uh, in fact, we, I kind of play a little game and get on the website. So well, how, how few do we have in stock today? Because people have been buying absolutely everything. But a couple of years ago at SHOT Show, we actually came out for the first time in our uh, now over 80 year history uh, as a firearms manufacturer. Uh, now, now, the rifles, they were called the retro rifles. They were cosmetically correct copies of significant AR-15 designs. Uh, we had such things. My favorite one was the, uh, the green-furnitured Colt 601, uh, which was a, a cosmetic copy of the very first AR-15-style rifle adopted into U.S. military service by the Air Force. Air Force security, uh, the, the air base security personnel, Curtis LeMay and the famous story about Curtis at the 4th of July picnic with one of his new whiz-bang rifles and a bunch of watermelons is what convinced Air Force generals they needed those rifles for their security uh, personnel at their air bases. But we had several different models. Um, and even though we don't actually build them here, we're the manufacturer legally of records. So they, all the receivers that will say Brownells and our current, um, our current locations in Grinnell, Iowa, but where our FFL is located for, for manufacturing purposes is in Montezuma. So on the receiver, they all say Brownells, Montezuma, Iowa. So we actually are technically a gun maker. Um, but it, it, it took us years and years to get that. Other than that, we sell anything you can imagine related to firearms, down to the individual springs, to gunsmithing tools, to chemicals, to magazines, to gun cases, to reloading supplies, to ammo. That's, that's another current sore spot in the industry is ammo. And we even have a line of what we call our ESG or emergency survival gear, where you can get things like water purifiers, long-term storage food, fire starters, things of that nature. Yeah, you guys cover the gamut of different products, which was very informative to me because I know you guys were specializing in certain sectors of the industry, but it's good that you've experienced right. recently. And, and I have right. a clarity of that. I should know this. <laughs> well, and this is, this, this is one thing we were actively... Uh, working, I mean, we're very, very proud that we were known as a gunsmith supply house for about 65, 70 years, and we'll always, always supply the gunsmith customers, but we're really working pretty hard to try to tell folks, hey, folks, we, we do more than just like 1911 trigger job sear jigs, right? We do more than, 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 than woodworking files. We got all sorts of stuff. Yeah, and it, it goes to show that you guys have the name, obviously, and I think you're one of the most highly engaged uh, firearms brands in the country. Uh, one of the top, I mean, I, I see it from social media. A lot of people engage with Brownells. You guys had your YouTube channel taken off a few years ago, then reinstated. Uh, so people, back. as your, your, your household name and, and what do you think is the secret to people catching on to Brownells and, and taking what you're offering to be of interest? Why, why do you think you guys have such a good reception in the industry? 
Oh, all sorts of factors. One, one of the people I really want to give a shout out to here is our, uh, our brand engagement manager, Josh Coburn. He runs our, uh, our social media, uh, Instagram, especially Instagram, Facebook. Uh, we have a photo video team, of course, that produces in-house content for the YouTube channel. And we're all the time looking for new ideas there. But uh, Josh is really, really great at what he does. Well, I'm fortunate I work on a really great team here in Brownells. Uh, we're all in alignment. We're, we all, I think, understand the value of things like social media. And, and we, uh, we, we, we work real hard to try to find ways to, to, to work in that world and work with people in that world, like we're doing right now with the podcast. Yeah, it's smart uh, because I think a lot of people across different industries, even including the outdoor industry, were very reluctant to embrace digital media. We've talked about this at Poma many times. And, and oh, yes. Yes, I've, heard, I've been there and heard that, yes. We, we, we were there, and then I think we talked about it at SHOT Show when we first met in, I think it was uh, early 2019. Right. And other instances, like the greater conversation is why aren't people getting with the times and doing digital work. And thankfully we've seen an avalanche of people now doing that different brands, individuals, because they mm -hmm. recognize that you can market and you can, you can't sell products necessarily. You can right. use in right. to pass the channels, but yeah, it's an effective tool. Um, you know, good, good and bad with it. And I think there's, there's some organic things in the firearms industry, especially that just make it a lot tougher like you said, we can't actually sell product. We can't have links to product for sale on social media because we have evil gun things. Oh my gosh, not that, right? It's just constitutionally protected, guaranteed, right? You know, that's that's all. But it's, it's icky, evil gun stuff, so we can't. Uh, also, the gun industry, one of the things that we have to work under is the Gun Control Act of 1968, so a whole lot of, of, of ways of doing things in the gun industry were effectively in some ways kind of frozen in the year 1968 with, with the implementation of the Federal Gun Control Act of 1968. Uh, for example, uh, there's still a whole real big emphasis in the gun industry on brick and mortar retail locations because of the way the federal laws are written because you have to have an FFL licensed premises to be able to legally sell guns. So I, this brings up a chance. There's something I just want to hit real quick, especially for folks who may not be familiar with it, because they hear about uh, online gun sales. Mm -hmm. Online gun sales are only kind of sort of online. It is pretty much impossible for someone to say, hey, I, I want that AR-15 I see on brownells.com and order it, and it, it cannot ship to your house. You can order it, and it will ship to a federal firearm firearms licensed business and FFL firearms, federal firearms licensee, I think is the correct term. And in the industry, we call it an FFL and that's a licensed gun store. So it has to ship to an actual physical retail outlet that has uh, all the necessary federal paperwork, a federal firearms license. And then the customer still has to go to the gun dealer. Typically there's, there's what's called a transfer fee because the gun dealer will, will receive the gun legally for you then you have to pay, it's usually like 25, between 25 and 50 bucks. It depends on the location in the gun store and it's uh, all sorts of things. You pay a little fee and then you have to fill out your form 4473 and undergo the uh, National Instant Check System, FBI background check. So it's sort of, you can buy guns online, but the guns will ship to a, a licensed FFL in your location. A Brownells tries to make that as easy as possible because for every single gun for sale on our website, there's a little blank on the website where you enter your zip code. First of all, you can find out if the gun is legal for purchase in your area. Unfortunately, there are some states, 
I won't name any of them, <laughs> but who have passed crazy laws restricting magazine capacity or outright banning certain models of guns. Uh, so you, you enter your little, your little zip code and then find FFL dealer. There's another button and you click on it and a little map will pop up around your zip code showing all the FFLs. And if they're marked in red on our website, they're what we call a featured dealer. So they've already gotten a written agreement from us to receive guns on behalf of customers. So we, we make it as simple and as streamlined as possible. So you can sort of buy guns on the internet, but they all have to ship to a federal firearms licensee and you still have to undergo the background check. Yeah, and, and that goes into the greater conversation of like the gun show loophole. How, uh, yeah, and there's no such thing, yeah. It's very <laughs> the DOJ, you probably saw the study from early 2019, found that criminals don't use the so-called gun show loophole or right. uh, private sales much. They usually buy them off the street illegally. The street, that they're already stolen or they steal them themselves, yeah. They take these rare instances of gun purchases and they try to generalize them and, and right. make them kind of a commonality. But speaking of gun purchases, I think we saw, I think the industry was really thrilled to see, and not so much for their bottom line, but I think from a uh, purchasing standpoint, but also from a kind of uh, empowerment standpoint, the industry saw, what was it, 10 million new gun owners last That's year? It's up to 10. The, the last, I'm not surprised. The last article I saw was projecting eight. So I'm not surprised if it's 10. Not absolutely not surprised. Uh, and on, like you said, on the one hand, we're, we're, we're very, those of us in the industry, and I'm, I, I'm speaking for me, I'm speaking for Roy Hill. I work at Brownells. I'm not necessarily, but I'm, I work at Brownells. So I'll speak for Roy Hill. I'm personally thrilled to see that many Americans come to the realization that, hey, the only person who's going to take care of me is me. That's, that's, I, there's a lot of that at work. We're not, I'm not happy about the reasons why that happened because, uh, and our, 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 our big boss, Pete Brownell has been on Fox business a couple of times. So some of y'all may have seen that, but we started seeing the sales spikes in March, about second, third week of March. And that was with the COVID lockdowns because at the same time that COVID lockdowns were going into effect, you had certain stories of certain major metropolitan areas we're issuing statements that unless some, unless it was like a murder call or something like that, the police just weren't going to respond. And also we had other big cities announcing, hey, we're going to let all the uh, the guys in jail awaiting trial, we're going to let them out because of COVID concerns. So you had the, 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 the double whammy of police announcements that police departments just weren't going to respond to certain types of calls. And oh yeah, we're going to let a lot of guys with pending charges out too. Uh, that, that caused the light bulb to come on for lots of Americans, millions of Americans that, oh, I may have to be my own first responder if something bad happens. And uh, it was, the fire was already raging. And then when more and more people got that lesson, as they saw into the summer, the civil unrest and, and the unfortunate scenes of parts of major downtowns being burned and looted and rioting going on, uh, more and more people had that light bulb moment that, oh, I may be on my own and something really bad might happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but um, something I wanted to ask you was, it's interesting, we saw this surge of gun ownership, but it didn't necessarily translate politically. Why no. do you think that is? Uh, a whole variety of reasons, a whole variety of reasons. And again, I come from a background where uh, I would be, 
not necessarily politically aligned with lots of the folks I used to work with in higher education. I'll just say a point at that. And I knew lots of folks who voted a certain way who still owned guns and still wanted, hey, I want to be able to protect myself. And sometimes, a lot of times, there's this disconnect uh, between, oh, I need to be able to take care of me, but I'm going to vote for politicians who are in, in probably pass and, and, and be in favor of certain policies that will take away certain things from me. And a lot of times there's just this disconnect, this disconnect. I've, I've personally witnessed it more than once where a person who, who votes, I'll just go ahead and say Democrat, is shocked and horrified to find out that, oh, living in this state, you mean I can't have a regular magazine? Oh, when did we do that? Well, funny you should ask. Uh, you know those candidates y'all keep voting for? Yeah, they, they, they voted to ban your magazines. I mean, I'm not kidding. I've had that very conversation more than once. Yeah, but I mean, it's, I mean, with the, we see a lot of Democrats now actually buying guns, interestingly enough. And, and right. interestingly I, enough. You should totally buy guns. I think everyone should. Oh, I like that. It's for everybody. It's wonderful. I hope they start to recognize, though, politically speaking, they have to vote for pro-gun candidates or candidates who necessarily won't infringe on their right to own guns. But it's it's so interesting just to note that disconnect. And I don't know if it can be quantified, perhaps, because uh, we see in House races, that wasn't necessarily the case. We kind of saw an opposite effect. Um, not a complete right. over right. gun candidates, but we saw people do better in the House, we didn't win the presidency. And in the Senate, like you said, it remains to be seen. Um, as this comes out, this will come out tomorrow or the day of the election. Right. It'll be, it's Georgia runoff. Right, 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 right. It'll be, remain to be seen, you know, once this comes out tomorrow or the day of the Georgia runoff, if we get to maintain a pro-gun Senate majority. Um, but yeah, there is kind of a disconnect, um, but not entirely. I think people have a heightened sense of awareness as to the need to protect and, and the need to not elect lawmakers. But right see if you can kind of quantify gun ownership and how it translates to political voting habits. But that probably be something in the future that people will kind of demand it and want to do. But perhaps the industry is going to have to wrestle with and companies like yours have to wrestle with, well, how can we obviously promote our business? How can we function right. as a business? Um, mm -hmm. Yet a lot of people who start to buy guns don't necessarily understand what they're doing, perhaps right. people to vote against their interests, vote against their uh, ability for self Her ability to own those certain types of guns and magazines and 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 i want to make it real clear i mean the second amendment is for everybody everybody in the united states regardless of your political affiliation it is so personally to me maddening and unfortunate that something like the second amendment the right to keep and bear arms for your personal and also the national defense has been so politicized but i mean the truth is it has it has there's no way around it uh, it makes no sense to me. I don't understand it. I don't get it. Um, and we're absolutely in favor of everybody, regardless of political affiliation, exercising your constitutionally guaranteed right to keep and bear arms. Absolutely in favor of that. Uh, I'll just also say that even on, if you will say, the folks who are pro-gun, um, I see oftentimes, sometimes disconnects there. And I'm not necessarily voting patterns. It's that they just won't pay attention to politics and then some sort of ban or restriction gets passed and they'll go, when did that happen? <laughs> ah, okay. Right. You, what do you mean? I can't order ammo to my house anymore. Right. I, I've heard that. I, 
You cannot believe, over, and, I, and this is something, Second Amendment activism was something I was absolutely involved in way, way before I ever got to Brownells. I got to Brownells because of my Second Amendment beliefs and stances, because uh, I had to get in the gun industry. But I, I think I took my first public stand in favor of the, uh, the Second Amendment. I think her name was Mrs. Sloan, Mrs. Sloan's sixth grade social studies class. So that would have been like 1981, if you want to really date me. But yeah, uh, but I, on, on, on both sides of the political spectrum, I, I just see disconnects. And I hope, and I, I think the sales numbers are reflecting this. More and more people are having their aha moment. And more and more people are finding out, oh, I might actually need a firearm. I might need to be able to defend myself. Uh, and then in my also personal experience, the more folks who go out and exercise that, learn how to shoot, and it is actually a very powerful, empowering experience many, many times. It is. And once you partake in it directly, you have a change of heart. I wasn't really opposed to guns, but I just never had the experience in my personal right. And I, I was going to bring that up because you're, you're relatively like four or five years now for you. More seriously, but I picked up my first gun about 10 years ago, but I got really into it about eight, seven, and then like super serious, like five, six years ago. Yeah. What, I, what, what was the first gun you shot? Oh gosh. I do not recall the prototype. It was a handgun and then there was a hunting rifle. Okay. Um, do yeah. not recall the makes, but I, I got to shoot both a shotgun and then also a handgun. So that was really interesting. That was before I knew how to grip properly. That was before I knew certain stances, breathing techniques. But, you know, for me, it was fun. We shot in like the, the mountains of San Bernardino. I don't know if it was legal, but we didn't right. wrong. Nobody. <laughs> it was public land hunting, shooting experience. Right. right. If it's BLM, I mean, there was a statement from the BLM about target shooting on BLM land as being a longstanding tradition. I mean, I mean, I'm absolutely all in favor of that. I just hope everybody who does that remembers to pick up their empties and use a biodegradable targets and or pack their trash out. Absolutely. Back to kind of the policy angle. Um, you guys are really outspoken against the recent proposed ATF rule to ban pistol grips for AR models. And you've kind of sounded the alarm for other different measures. And I, understand with the incoming new administration coming in, which is seen as very hostile to gun rights. I know Biden wants to tax a lot of gun parts. He wants to, right. and a lot of modern ARs. Mm -hmm. So they're going to use, if, if he doesn't get control of the Senate, the Democrats don't get control of the Senate, he's going to use these other mechanisms through taxation to prohibit a lot of commonly used gun parts. Mm -hmm. But speaking back more so to the ATF piece, um, why did you guys oppose that? And, and what was the importance of doing that? And, and the victory that resulted with a lot of people commenting? As, as I understand the, the reclassification effort, and I read it several times, and, and Brownells did make some social media posts, and lots of folks we work with, and they, they put out some rather vague, nebulous uh, uh, characteristics and said it would depend on the caliber. It would depend on things such as a, a, a vertical foregrip or not. It might depend on, on what type of optic or sight was put on it, et cetera, et cetera. Braces themselves, uh, the whole point of the, of the brace, it was originally developed as, a, as an aid to help a disabled combat vet still be able to shoot an AR-15 style pistol. And uh, they look kind of like stocks, but the ATF has ruled several times they are not stocks. Braces have been around, oh, about eight years now. There's been several, several cases of folks writing to the ATF for a letter, hey, are these things actually okay? The ATF saying, yeah, sure, they're okay. Uh, 
And then there was a, a few years ago, there was a, the, the statement by the ATF that, yeah, you can have a stock, but if you, if you shoulder it, if you put it in your shoulder, that you may be re redesigning your pistol into a short-barreled rifle. There's all sorts of things. The, the problem would be twofold, at least. Number one, over the last eight years when the ATF first said, hey, braces are perfectly fine, there are literally millions millions of brace-equipped pistols in private ownership in the United States. Uh, they are cool. I have one. I built one, and I built a 9-millimeter AR-15 pistol for a series of articles at Brownell's website and actually put a brace on it. I love it. It's awesome. So the first problem is there are literally millions. And by this just reclassifying and saying, hey, we used to interpret this regulation this way, but now we're gonna interpret this way, and never mind what we said for eight years, there was the potential to turn millions of Americans who've never done anything wrong into instant felons overnight because of doing something that they were told was okay to do. Uh, there was that. The other, the reason there are millions upon millions of Americans who own braced pistols is because there are companies that employ hundreds of people who are now in existence that didn't exist 10 years ago. And this is what they do. They make braces. Uh, I was clicking off when we were going through this, I was clicking off a list in my head of all the major manufacturing companies uh, who now sell firearms that come standard equipped with a brace from the factory. Uh, so there would be overwhelming economic impact and there would be over for the firearms industry and then there would be overwhelming legal implication for literally millions of Americans who were following what they were told was okay to do for about eight years and all of a sudden they were going to be told well maybe that's not okay interesting and more broadly speaking how do you think the firearms industry is gripping with this new administration obviously I kind of alluded to kind of the taxation element mm -hmm. um, are you guys worried about uh the business model being affected. I know a lot of people worry. I mean, it's already hard with Corona. Well, yeah, we, we already have, I mean, we, we have to, we have to pay attention to politics and the firearms industry. There's no other way around it. The second amendment absolutely should not be a political issue. It should not be politicized. Unfortunately it is. Mm -hmm. And politics absolutely certainly affects what the firearms industry does uh, down to even uh uh, what state you can sell a certain accessory to or not, or where can you ship this magazine, but this other magazine's okay, but this gun's okay, but this gun that looks just like it is not okay. Um, there's a myriad of, of laws and things, and they, they, are, they are absolutely influenced by politics. So we're keeping a very close eye. Right now, um, the inauguration is... 16 days away, two weeks away. For take. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, uh, I'm sure all firearms companies have made contingency plans. If A happens, if B happens, and then we've got our C plan for things we can't even think of yet. I'm sure that they've all the, the industry companies have made their plans, and we're all just kind of I would I would guess just kind of in a wait and see mode to see what actually happens. Uh, so obviously we're going to keep a close eye on it. We're going to stay as informed as we can. We're going to communicate with each other and with our customers. And all we can do right now is just kind of wait and see what happens. Right. But can't it be argued that actually a anti-gun or very pro-gun control president is actually good for business? Could that be seen? Because well, it was yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I mean, there's, you can find snarky jokes on the internet about Obama being the, you know, the gun salesman of the year for about eight years. Um, absolutely. 
that does happen in the industry. I mean, you're seeing, I think you're seeing that you're going to see that the pressure of a potential anti-gun administration is, is going to be the napalm on top of the gasoline on top of the fire. Uh, uh, that, and I don't think the ammunition situation, for example, is going to get any better anytime soon, just because I think demand will go even higher once, say, in, in it looks like Biden's going to be inaugurated. I don't think there's any way that doesn't happen now. Uh, once that happens and people are, 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 are saying, oh, this happened, dude's in the, in the office, uh, I think you might see demand go even higher. Yeah, because in, in previous years, that's usually the maxim that a lot of us abide by. Like when a Democrat, usually who is anti-gun, is in charge, uh, we see s- sales skyrocket. But it was kind of an anomaly last year because we have a you know, a generally friendly pro-gun administration right. administration right. saw all these different records shattered in terms of purchases and uh, different things that happened. So it was kind mm-hmm. of an off year um, with that, but I can imagine demand for ammo, guns, et cetera, will be very, very high going into. Oh, yes. Yes. But even, even when you're talking about 2020 uh, and, and then there are folks who would say, uh, yeah, maybe Trump wasn't necessarily pro-gun, but maybe he wasn't just virulently anti-gun. And I, I don't want to get into all the controversies with the bump stock, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's a whole other podcast. But um, uh, in 2019, things were kind of flat across the industry. Things were kind of flat. There was no sense of, oh my gosh, things might get banned. And things would have continued to be flat and I already said this before, is, and we, we sold a lot of stuff. We're not necessarily happy with the reasons why, because nobody predicted a pandemic called COVID-19 and, and, and the subsequent shutdowns and, and, and the issues with, with uh, police response and releasing prisoners. And sure as heck, nobody in 2019, summer of 2019, would, could look in the crystal ball and say, oh, yes, parts of Minneapolis will be burned to the ground in summer of 2020. Um, those were just things beyond anybody's ability to predict or see that were absolutely market forces for the firearms industry. Yeah. And, and certainly it'll be interesting to note like how the industry at large will be able to keep up with demand. Cause I haven't even given thought to oh. replenishing my ammo <laughs> supply. I still have a little canister. So I'm like holding and clinging onto it as time. Right. Cause I, I have very few left, but I've found like some people I know have found like stashes. I'm like, where are you finding this? But they're paying way too much for an individual uh, bullet. Uh, intro- yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's right. That's supply and demand. That's what, what I work in the industry and I can't get ammo. Yeah. Okay? I can't get ammo. Right. Right. Yeah. It, it's so confounding, but so interesting, but I hope, and I, I think what the takeaway from all this is like with people purchasing, I hope they are getting properly educated and learning mm-hmm. how which is something the industry teaches at large. Obviously, right. you do NSSF, the, the trade association is really keen on that. Mm-hmm. And that's something people have to reinforce and, and have reinforced when they're purchasing guns. They have to recognize it's not a little play thing. It's a very uh, important serious tool that you have to have proper training to make sure you don't hurt yourself or somebody you care about, right? Exactly, yeah. It's a last don't want to use it aimlessly or recklessly. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I think people forget kind of lost in the conversation is the conservation piece. And I, that's why I don't shy away from talking about firearms because people right. forget that excise taxes collected on guns and ammunition. The Robertson Act, yes. Uh, do you guys focus on that component? And, and maybe you could speak to it individually, why it's so important and people forget that that's kind of an unintended, but kind of intended consequence of gun control policy. Right. 
Right. And after I, I kind of talk about this, I want to come back to you got your first deer this year. And I, want, I want to hear about that. Yes, well, I'm going to talk about Pittman Robertson Act for folks who don't know. I, was it in the 30s or was, was it 1947? Is that the date sticking to my head? 37. 37. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, it was an act passed by Congress and signed by the then president that established an excise tax on all guns and ammo sold inside the United States that would be dedicated to wildlife conservation efforts. Mm-hmm. The thinking that the folks who, who guns are often used in hunting uh, and it's even guns that I mean your, your, your 380 automatic pocket pistol is probably not going to be used for hunting although in some states it is legal mm-hmm. depending on the game uh, there's excise tax on that 380 automatic pocket pistol that gets sent to Pittman Robertson and it, if you don't uh, know uh, a, a key phrase to Google would be of the American model of wildlife conservation considering wildlife and wild places to be resources, to be conserved, not preserved, not walled off and allowed to exist unmolested, but to be managed for the benefit and enjoyment of Americans. Uh, And this is why you have things like state uh, wildlife agencies or, 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 or federal wildlife agencies and efforts to buy property to put into wildlife habitat or to maintain and take care of wildlife habitat or to help with the recovery of of different species. I mean, I'm originally from Arkansas. I'm originally from Arkansas and black bears were considered pretty much officially extirpated from the state when I was a very young boy, even though I knew better. That's a story for another. I don't want to steal Thorpe's The Big Bear of Arkansas, which I used to teach in class. But, yeah, check out that story. It's great. But uh, black bears were considered pretty much officially extirpated extirpated from the state. And because of the dollars available and the resources available for wildlife conservation, the black bear was reintroduced to the point for like the last 20, 30, probably like 30 years, there's been a huntable population of black bears in Arkansas. In fact, where I grew up in Arkansas has some of the biggest, meanest, nastiest black bears you can find in continental uh, United States. And uh, it's the black bear reintroduction into the state of Arkansas is always touted as one of the single best reintroductions of a large predatory animal back into its original range ever in the history of conservation. And that was made possible by the by the the billions of dollars created by the Pittman Robertson Act, excise tax on guns and ammo. Yeah, and it's because there was too much of market game hunting at the turn of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And it was hunters who recognized that if they harvest more than their lot, there won't be, there won't be any more. <laughs> Yeah, which would be very counterintuitive. And it makes no sense to eliminate everything and just and, and have about it from kind of a commerce angle. And that's why we don't see uh, the selling of wild game meat uh, through stores. Right. I think you can bypass that through farms, but it's right. a Lacey Act of 1900 to, to sell wild game mm-hmm. meat and don't, don't sell it because you'll get in trouble under right. the Act. I don't, don't, that's federal. Right. <laughs> so you have to give it away for free uh, if you do gift it. Uh, but, but somehow farms are able to bypass it um, and, and somehow sell it uh, through, I think it, uh, where is it? Um, there's a uh, local uh, Harris Teeter. Somehow you can buy like uh, bison meat and uh, elk and things like that. Yeah, they find a loophole um, through kind of the farming uh, aspect. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's really ridiculous that people think hunters want to eliminate it, and it's not simply because we want to eliminate 
or get rid of and, and have this kind of like bloodlust desire to go after animals. We like admiring them too. Anytime I see deer, for instance, over the weekend, I saw three incredible bucks on the George Washington Parkway. Right. Obviously, they were in an area you couldn't really target them. They were kind of like visibly on the hiking path and I was driving and I saw them and they, they're very clever. They know where to hide. I only see a doe and her two fawns come into my backyard and it's an archery uh, zone. You can't hunt with rifle <laughs> in my part of the county, but you can still admire and see these incredible creatures for yourself wow. uh, in addition to, you know, wanting to pursue them when the season allots you to do so. so. They taste great grilled with mushrooms. Yes. yes. I know firsthand from getting my own deer, right. now, but yeah. How did how did you get into hunting? And tell me about your first deer. <laughs> well, because of a lot of you in the industry, you guys kind of pushed me in this direction. I would say it was like Jana Waller, Christy Titus, and a few others mm -hmm. uh, who really did kind of tell me and give me the confidence that like I could do this. And they would I would interview them or meet with them and talk to them, and they'd say, "Yeah, you could do this. Like it's not a not a hard problem." Also, Cyrus Baird from uh, Safari Club was a really big influencer. Yeah me in, in that respect. And he took me on a few hunts and I've, I've gone with a few friends here in Virginia for duck hunting, turkey mm -hmm. hunting, pheasant hunting, all that jazz. And uh, yeah, I just have an interest in it because wild game meat is delicious. I love exotic meats. You know, my family background, we love to eat in Eastern Europe, all these different cool cuts of meat. I've had bear sausage before right. eating cow tongue. So it wasn't unusual for me to kind of experiment with wild game. Right, right, right. But but uh, kind of more broadly speaking, yeah, it, it's it's a really good thing. And, and when I can't do fishing and hunting allows, I want to be able to do it as well, just to kind of get the well-roundedness, to go hiking, to surround myself in nature, have the camaraderie with other hunters. And also, if I'm lucky, get the the ultimate prize in some delicious uh, free range, you know, wild game meat. And right. you got your whitetail in Wyoming. It. Have you eaten part of it yet? already yeah my dad was able to experiment with it he did a he did a bacon wrapped uh venison roast which turned out delicious and we've done a little bit of uh cooking and then i gave one uh, i gifted a roast to one of my friends he seared it and we ate it at his place in dc um so i like collaboratively i've i've uh, cooked it and then i'm gonna hopefully do the undertaking of making jerky with it very soon oh cool and how much better does it taste when you take that first bite of the steak or whatever that you didn't go down to the grocery store and bought, that you worked your rear end off out there in Wyoming to track and find and make the shot, et cetera? How much better does it taste? A lot more rewarding. And yes. I didn't entirely stock it by myself, but I was a lot more involved in the process. We had a guide assigned to us. Oh, oh yeah. Um, from Wyoming Arms, John from Wyoming Arms. He was phenomenal on the, the private ranch that we were hunting on, which is owned by one of the commissioners, mm -hmm. um, Mike Schmidt, who is a phenomenal guy from Wyoming. And uh, he is, um, yeah, and it was just really wonderful. Like he was able to help me spot and stock, which is very different from what I've done in Virginia. I've sat in blinds in Virginia. That's kind of what you do. Sat but in blind, right. Uh -huh. You kind of, and probably in Wyoming or in uh, Iowa too, excuse me, uh, you guys do a lot of spot and stalking. Uh, because those opportunities present themselves. So there's probably people who do blind hunting. Right. In Wyoming, they're really keen on, you have to go and get it. Like it's your private land hunting experience isn't going to be right. here. You can't just simply call it and then you shoot it and you go. Uh, some some of our hunting party <laughs> uh, learned the hard way that uh, you could try to call deer all you want, sit in the blind, you won't get results. So I think all of us who had success in the field, which was like 90%, right little bit of spotting and stalking, which was fun. Um, I had a lot of discipline. I wasn't nervous. And 
it all just came together, you know, after a, the first attempt, I wasn't comfortable shooting because there was a deer behind. So I was like, Oh, I got to readjust. I got to move. And I got to make sure that there's not going to be any deer in the vicinity. And then when I reprogrammed and readjusted, I was able to find one perfectly broadside. The head was a little covered by the tree, but like the shoulder and everything was perfectly broadside. I took the shot and bam and wham and done. And it was, it was delivered. So it was really exhilarating. I wasn't crying. I, I got a little teary eyed uh, when I took my first pheasant because that was my first animal of consequence. Right, but right. when I was a little more calm, I was grateful and appreciative, of course, yes. with, yes. with animals you take. But I, I wanted to be calm because if I got too emotional, I knew I would probably fidget, make a mistake, right. a missed shot. So I was like, you got to be calm. You got to be measured. And that's kind of what I did, but that's kind of my hunt in a nutshell, but it's an exhilarating feeling and hopefully I can get more big game animals. I did get a hog last year in Georgia, but it darted off and I wasn't able to find it <laughs> My uh -huh. in Georgia was able to track its uh, remains after the fact. So there's a skull of my, uh, you got that at least. There you go. Yeah. yeah with, with hogs, there's, there's way plenty more of those. I mean, yeah, every Game and Fish Commissioner Department of Natural Resource I know of where they have feral hogs says, kill them, please kill them, kill all of them, pretty please, just, just kill them, because they're horribly destructive and they're invasive. Uh, and I've seen a statistic that to keep a population of feral hogs flat, not reduce their numbers, but keep them flat, you got to kill 60% of the population every year. Because some of the sows have three litters a year. So to keep the population from increasing, you got to kill six out of 10. Yeah. And nowhere is doing that. Nobody's able to do that. That's so, yeah, you know, quack feral hogs with impunity, yes. Yeah, they proliferate and procreate incredibly fast, as you mentioned. I think my client said in Georgia he's seen like three or four litters a year. Yeah, it's warm enough in Georgia they can do four. Yeah. yeah. Georgia, Northern Georgia is great for hog hunting because they're just everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, I've heard that they're starting to trickle into Virginia, so maybe there will be some opportunities. I know they're destructive, but like I, I part that they would come so like some of us can help cold them <laughs> <laughs> me 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 volunteer home. yeah it's it's a little too cold in iowa the ground gets frozen up here thank goodness we don't I, I don't know they could probably still find enough stuff laying on the surface but as far as i know there's there are no confirmed populations of feral hogs in iowa and nobody up here wants them they're like a million across the country i think where are the populations texas probably more south oh south. yeah texas is covered up too um, but they're probably going to start migrating um probably to virginia at some yeah, point. as far as the habitats for indoor they'll go yeah what was it tennessee and kentucky have some too? i think tennessee has some wild hogs um kentucky I, I may be incorrect in that point but tennessee is starting to have some monster hogs which is crazy to believe that but yeah no it's uh it's really good to finally join the club of i wouldn't call myself a big game hunter but to finally get a big game animal yeah, well if you've got a, if you've got a deer on the ground you're a big game hunter yes now yeah. i and wear that badge with an You're an adult adult onset big game hunter, but you are in fact a big game hunter. You no, know, I people give that term a lot of flag, but I actually kind of like it. It it, right. it it's not like you separate yourself from other hunters, but if you're new and you want to wear that new label proud, you should. And and it's a, yeah. a, like a scientific appropriate term to describe people. People in these esteemed legacy media outlets like take to it very kindly. Like, oh, an adult onset hunter. This is so fascinating. And now everyone's covered. Right. Pew Research Poll is very fascinated by the topic. Wall Street Journal has uh, very, uh, I would say, adeptly covered the topic at length from field to fork programs. Uh, mm -hmm. And 
is just so curious and fascinated by hunters and they recognize the role hunters play in replenishing conservation dollars. So we should sell it. And uh, any way that all of us can do it, like I'll do it, you know, from my own personal firsthand experience, I I like to bring on people who talk about it. You you guys at Brownells can do it. You guys elevate a lot of influencers and you highlight hunters, recreational shooters. So we just got to keep replenishing and, and putting content out there about how multifarious the outdoor industry is. Right. And, and one of the things I'm very aware of, too, is the R3 initiate, uh, initiative to uh, recruit, retain and reactivate. That's why it's called R3's recruit, retain, reactivate more and more hunters, because unfortunately, every year, the number of hunters keeps going down and lots of agencies are realizing, hey, our Pittman Robertson dollars are going to go away if we don't get more folks hunting. Uh, so there's lots and lots of opportunities out there. Uh, I, I can't think of a more natural activity to do. Uh, human beings, well, whatever your belief system is, we are kind of sort of top of the food chain. Uh, we do eat meat. Uh, some of us make the conscious decision to not. That's fine. Whatever you want to do, that's fine. But right. that's, I mean, if you're going to eat meat, why not immerse yourself in the in the entire process? And and as as, as you discovered too, for me personally, anytime I take a bite of meat that I've personally wrested from nature myself, if you will, I've gone out, I've become part of the nature, I participate directly in the food chain, I have done the hard work of processing the animal, of tracking the animal down, of, of trying to blend in with the environment enough to actually take the animal, uh, it just tastes better, in my opinion. Maybe I'm just overcreating stuff in my head, but I think it just flat out tastes better. That's why the expression hunting tastes good is yes. a lot of people. Oh, yes. And yes. yeah, the processing process, I will say like, I used to probably be afraid of seeing so much blood, but I just got over it. I was just like, yeah. I'm being careful. I'm not going to cut my fingers. And th- this is, has a great end result. So you got you to gotta be a good trooper. You got to pull through with it. You got to get your hands dirty, get them bloody. And uh, it's going to have a, a, a good return on investment with the harvesting, uh, taking the kills. Oh, yeah all that so yeah no it's, it's an all-encompassing thing and I think people are now starting to understand that because I mean remember the meat scare earlier in the pandemic I remember so right. many, I I've seen some articles that more and more people took up hunting as a result of that yeah, yeah. we're worried about the facilities being tainted there was I think it was a surge in the price of beef it was up to ludicrous prices mm-hmm. uh, people mm-hmm. worried about whether the facilities were contaminated so it was it was just kind right. of uh, uh interesting here in Iowa, there were some, there were some meat processing plants that shut down for a while because of, of COVID outbreaks. So yeah, very local. Yeah. So that, that fear was real about like, oh gosh, if my meat is tainted, how am I going to get this source of protein? So I probably have to pick up hunting now. And, and maybe I admonished it in, in the past, these, these observers say, not me personally, but probably these naysayers who admonished hunting now are like, we see the appeal to this. And it's going to be really interesting to see what Fish and Wildlife Service and the other experts come out with in terms of the growth of hunting? Are we going to sustain those people, like you said, with R3? Um, the recruitment has been great. Are we going to retain them and right. reactivate people who perhaps were displaced or perhaps fell away from the activity? So that's going to be something uh, that all of us, and and like you, I'm also in communications as well for my main job. And something that I love about Professional Outdoor Media Association, kind of our media home base and, and the organization at hand there, we talk about these topics. We talk about how to counter things how to portray things positively in hunting and shooting sports do you think organizations like poma are going to continue to grow and 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 what's the essential need for organizations like that and and do you think can they improve upon existing work get more more numbers and also get younger and younger 
get younger and younger. Uh, even more folks who are more, uh, for example, in my household, we don't have TV anymore. We don't have any TV. Anything we watch, we do have a big screen TV. We don't have a cable service. Uh, everything we watch is streaming. Everything. It's all digital. Uh, we don't have satellite. We don't have cable. Uh, we don't even really get local channels. If I want to look up what's going on locally, I just go to the website, right? Uh, and and people are moving more and more and more and more and more and more and more. I mean, there's even uh, the, the breaking story coming out that Hollywood's concerned that Netflix is going to take over Hollywood, right? You've seen, I'm sure you've seen those articles. It's going to totally disrupt and, and, and redo the film industry. In fact, you're seeing major motion pictures that are being released Netflix first. You're starting to see some movies that, that are made for specifically Netflix release. And, oh, maybe they'll do it in a the theater. But uh, the Outdoor Media Association, and not just Poma, I mean, everybody involved in outdoor media needs to keep looking younger, more digital, I think. Figure out ways to capitalize on, on digital. Figure out more ways to get the positive message out there. And I'm going to go ahead and touch my Bureau of Propaganda flag when I say that. I'll talk about that in a second. But more ways to get the positive message out there that, that, that the outdoor shooting sports are fun. They are safe. They're empowering. Uh, I can't think of anything more empowering than being able to be responsible for your own supply of protein. I mean, if you can go out into nature and bring back food, uh, and you were talking about uh, the uh, the field dressing aspect. One of my favorite memories is about seven years ago. I was giving my son his first lesson on digestive tracts because he was helping me clean pheasants in the backyard. <laughs> so, hey, son, you want to see what an esophagus is? Here you go. All right, here's here's how it hooks into the stomach and blah 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 blah. Yeah, we're we're doing an anatomy lesson with cleaning a pheasant. But uh, I think there's the, the the fields are 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 ripe unto harvest for that sort of thing. And yeah, I think it behooves all of us to find ways to make more and more connections and get more and more involved and get more folks uh, participating. Yeah, and the importance of sharing content too. I think sometimes people are really uh, stuck on their little hovels, like they don't want to ruin or tarnish their Instagram feed. Uh, so I encourage everyone who who is watching and listening, like if you want to elevate right. Like, don't just stick to your little kind of ecosystem, like share in a story on Instagram, share on Facebook. I try to do my best to do that too, uh, because I know how frustrating it can be when you put out something phenomenal and people don't react to it. So anytime I see or right. interesting content, I, I make it a, incumbent upon myself to share it in some capacity, whether it's a retweet on Twitter, outright sharing. And uh, that, that's something that can go a long way too, especially to kind of bypass any changes to algorithms. Not mm -hmm. so much suppression, that's a, that's a concern too, but I think- um, Absolutely a concern, yes. Certainly suppression, but I think also just organically, it's really hard because the model now favors those who use paid ads um, as well. So you kind of have that right. working again. They, they make more money that way, right, right. Of course it does. If you can kind of overcome those algorithmic challenges and share things organically, you can still get a lot of engagement. I've seen that personally on my Facebook. That's been kind of hard to grow, but it's it, when you share organically, then you can still reach more people and kind of overcome those those challenges. But I, but I challenge anyone listening and watching to share content that you like. Don't just simply create a fancy feed, like try to elevate others because it's more than just like, are you getting enough likes or are you getting this or these sponsorships? We want to have a greater purpose somewhat to our social media curated feeds. We want to have, we want to inspire people to go hunting or go fishing or partake in shooting sports. Instagram has kind of grown for me in the last year, which is phenomenal, mm -hmm. but sometimes it's kind of hard because you're like, if I don't post anything with me in it, it doesn't get as much engagement or do I post myself? Do I do this? So I have to weigh a little bit there. Right. 
and find the right so time. I, oh, yeah, I, I, know, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Things now are like prime time for engagement, I've started to notice, or like delicious food or something of that nature. So you kind of have to twist and tweak your strategy. Uh, but but it is still possible to to kind of have a really fun social media feed and inspire people to go outdoors. So yeah, that, that's an important takeaway. But it's so good that outdoor media or associations do exist. And I know with Poma, they're always asking me ideas like, how can we improve and how can we do this? I'm yes. like, let's, let's do more storytelling. Yeah do more of this and i know everyone gets bogged down it's been a crazy time this last year obviously oh, yes our our friends at poma are wonderful like every year i don't mind yes. our renewal fee like i will happily do it because i know that i'll get something out of it by participating by bringing in people by participating in the different uh webinars that occur too so it's definitely we're going to see those type of organizations grow, especially as it kind of gets a little harder to, to do traditional media. I like what you said. I think digital is important. Um, doing things on YouTube, doing things on whatever other uh, video platforms, Vimeo and, and alternatives, if you find that um, mm-hmm. directly posting on social media. So you can have kind of more of an impact by directly posting onto digital outlets. Um, and then, and I think that's something existing, uh, structures like in the outdoor channel type uh, programming that's out there, they're going to struggle a little bit uh, going forward with everything going streaming or everything going digital. That, that could well be the case. And, and it will, it'll be remained, it'll remain to be seen which folks glom on and catch on to it and which folks don't. But yeah, we're, it's, 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 we're really, really in a time of flux and change in all sorts of ways. Yeah. Roy, this has been so much fun. We've had a wide ranging interview. We've talked a lot about guns, conservation, and the like. How can people connect with you and Brownells? Uh, the best way to check out Brownells is go to www.brownells.com. Uh, also check out Brownells has extensive social media presences on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Believe it or not, we even got a TikTok channel. Oh my gosh, you got to be careful, my friend. <laughs> What's that? You got to be careful with TikTok, Chinese spyware. You know, the, the, the communists are spying on us. Yes, yes. But we're all there. We're there because lots of young people are there too. And then uh, for me personally, I already did the shameless plug possum fat back on IG. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode of District of Conservation. If you like what you hear, make sure to follow us on your preferred podcasting platform. We're on close to 20 different providers, namely on Apple Podcasts. We're also on Anchor.fm, Google Podcasts, Spreaker, and many, many others out there. So you can't miss us on any platform. You can find us, especially even on cool, hip platforms like iHeartRadio, Radio.com, and I think Amazon Music also lists us as well. So that is really cool. We're reaching new, I guess, avenues for the podcast. So it's great. Totally worth celebrating. So find us wherever podcasts are played. Also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat or a guest announcement and teasers and previews of upcoming or past episodes and also interesting graphics and other curious things. We will be talking to Brad Smith from Walton Rods early next week, and I believe my dad will join the podcast again to talk about his feelings on our recent steelhead trout fishing trip in Pennsylvania. More guests are coming through the pipeline. We're going to be a watchdog on the incoming Biden administration to make sure you guys are kept abreast with all that is happening, good and bad policies. And I sadly incline myself to thinking we're going to see a lot of bad policy emanating from Washington in the coming years. So buckle up, stay vigilant and 
Encourage your friends to check us out here on the podcast at District of Conservation. I'll see you guys on Monday. Have a great rest of the week to cap off the beginning of 2021. Hopefully you're going to go outdoors and do the best you can to enjoy this new year. And hopefully you're off to a great start to 2021.